Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 is where we turn to in our Bibles this evening. Picking up our reading at verse 24, partway through, rather towards the end of the trial that Jesus, Jesus endured before Pontius Pilate, verse 24, reading all the way through to verse 46. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, and casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down now from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. And he trusted in, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him, 
cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Thus far we read from God's holy inspired word. May he bless the reading of his word. It's based upon that word and the general teaching of the scriptures that we have the instruction set forth in Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16, we've treated the first four questions and answers. So tonight we have the final one, question and answer 44. Why is there added, he descended into hell? Answer, that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, tel uh, terrors and hellish agonies, in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, have delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. I believe that Christ descended into hell. Beloved congregation, do you confess that? Do you believe that Christ descended into hell? And do you do so with a proper understanding of the meaning of that phrase? Just a very brief survey of that phrase, Christ descended into hell, will tell us that there is no small amount of confusion over as to what it means. Now, it is undeniable that there were some early church fathers who misunderstood it and misinterpreted it. And besides, it is also true that the phrase was not part of the original writing of the Apostles' Creed, but was added later. So, armed with those two facts, it is not, it is not surprising that there are those in the church world who would have this phrase removed from the Apostles' Creed. So, should it? Should it be removed? Although the phrase was later on added to the Apostles' Creed, and although the understanding of it had to be confirmed, and some say even corrected at the time of the 16th century Reformation, we must not conclude that this added phrase has ruined the Apostles' Creed and that therefore it should be removed. Far from it. It should be retained. It should be retained in the reformed and proper understanding of it without any reservation as it is explained clearly in our Heidelberg Catechism. 
Well, we're going to take the time this evening to explain what it means, both from a negative as well as a positive point of view, and as well also understand its necessity, and then conclude with the wonderful benefits we derive from it. So consider with me then the descent of Christ into hell. We'll notice in the first place the torment, in the second place the necessity, and in the third and final place the benefit. The descent of Christ into hell was torment and torment of the greatest degree. Christ's descent into hell means that he descended into inexpressible torment in soul and body. It does not mean, though, that Jesus went personally into various places after his death on the cross, other than heaven. It does not mean, in the first place, what Rome attaches to it as to meaning does not mean that Christ went into a place called limbo or limbus patris in the Latin. Does not mean that Christ went there as the Romish church teaches. So what is limbo? Limbo, according to Rome, is the place where all the saints, all the Old Testament saints were kept, the souls of the Old Testament saints were kept, and before the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is the place where the souls of Adam and Eve, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of David, of Elijah, and a whole long line of Old Testament saints was kept. Now, according to Rome, between the time that Jesus died and the time that he rose from the dead, that is, three days, the three days when he was in the grave, Jesus Christ literally descended into this place called Limbo. He went into this place called Limbo, which they regarded as hell. Jesus went into this place where the souls of the Old Testament saints were was kept, and he released those souls from that prison. So that after all those years of waiting in that prison, these souls could finally go up and ascend into heaven. Jesus finally released them. He gave them liberation. He set them free from prison in this limbo, out of this limbo and hell. That's what Rome says. But understand, beloved, that limbo is not the inexpressible anguish and torment that our Lord Jesus suffered on the cross. There is simply no such place. Still more in the second place, let's be clear and sure too that Jesus did not go into that biblical place called hell, the place of everlasting punishment of soul and body. This is what our Lutheran brothers and sisters believe. 
The Lutherans teach that Christ went into this place called hell, not limbo, but the real biblical place called hell, the place of everlasting punishment. They teach that after the resurrection, Jesus went there, went to this, went to hell to announce his victory to the ungodly and his victory over the ungodly as well. His victory, therefore, over death, the grave, and hell. But Jesus did not go into this, into this place, this biblical place called hell. Both teachings are wrong and are based on a wrong interpretation of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following. It's very interesting that this passage is wrongly interpreted by both Rome and the Lutherans. So if you open up your Bibles with me to that passage, to 1 Peter chapter 3, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 and 3 John, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 to begin with. These verses read as follows. For Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 19, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now both Rome and the Lutherans Look at this verse and interpret it slightly differently, but the similarity is that Christ went into this prison. Rome says prison is this place called limbo, and the Lutherans say it is this place called hell. He went there during the time of his suffering on the cross. What Rome, though, and what the Lutherans forget is what follows in verse 20 which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. That verse, beloved, gives us the time setting for when Jesus went to preach to these spirits in prison. It wasn't at the time of the cross, but it was during the days of Noah. This was Christ pre-incarnate, preaching the word through that preacher of righteousness, Noah, see 2 Peter 2 verse 5, that's who Noah is, the preacher of righteousness, to the souls who were held in bondage, in slavery, and therefore is rightly to be described as being imprisoned. That's when Christ, and that's how Christ preached to those souls and spirits in prison. These verses teach nothing of what Rome teaches. And these verses teach nothing of what the Lutherans say 
it teaches. Christ's descent into hell refers not to him literally going into limbo, nor into the place of hell. Rather, Christ's descent into hell refers to the inexpressible anguish and hellish torments he endured, especially during the cross. That, beloved, is the proper understanding of this phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Christ descended not literally into hell itself, but rather Christ suffered the agony and inexpressible anguish and torments of hell, especially at the cross. There at the cross, he was plunged into. He sank into unspeakable, inexpressible, unfathomable anguish and torments. Humiliation of all humiliations on the cross. So that you see, the placement of this phrase in the Apostles' Creed is not accidental. It is deliberate. And it follows a certain order. A certain order as to the state of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And that order is not a chronological order. It's not in time. That is to say, from his time of birth, through his life on earth, to his death, his burial, his descent into hell, not a chronological order, but a logical order. So that at each step of the way, beginning with his incarnation and birth, there was humiliation. But that humiliation grew to be more intense and deep each step down the way. At incarnation and birth, Worse yet, all life long in his suffering, worse yet at his death and his burial, till we finally get to this description of the depths of his humiliation, his descent into hell. That's the order, the logical order. And we know, we know that Jesus endured such hellish torment because he cried out on the cross that fourth and chilling cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the cry that finally broke through that darkness and silence for three hours from twelve to three. It's supposed to be bright daylight at Calvary, but it's darkness over the entire Land. This cry broke that darkness, this chilling, chilling cry. And this cry speaks of the forsakenness of Christ our Saviour on the cross. What a misery it is to be forsaken, beloved. To be forsaken is to be deserted. To be forsaken is to be abandoned. And that's what Christ experienced, especially on 
the cross. Jesus experienced desertion. Jesus experienced abandonment. And I'm not here talking about desertion and abandonment from all the disciples. That's true. I'm talking about desertion and abandonment from His God and Father. So that all He could cry by this time is, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Such was the anguish that Christ experienced that He could only muster that address to His God, My God. Compare that now to the very first cry He uttered when He was crucified on the cross. Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And now in the very depths and intensity of His suffering and humiliation, all He could cry was His anguish and suffering. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And what a contrast, what a stark contrast that was to inspire John's description of Him pre-incarnate in heaven above in the bosom of His Father. Many young children and babies in our midst. You think of a young child and baby in the bosom of his or her mother. What a picture of intimacy. Picture of sweet, close, loving communion. That's what John under inspiration, was setting forth before us in John chapter 1. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. Perfect intimacy, closeness and communion as no other. And now you have this cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No more closeness. No more communion. No more intimacy. All of that replaced with the experience of desertion, abandonment, visited with and punished with His wrath, His killing wrath, a just, infinite, killing wrath that came upon our Saviour on the cross. To be forsaken by God is the ultimate fulfillment of the curse of God. The curse He bore for you and for me on account of our sins. The opposite of the curse is blessing. And in blessing, it is to, to speak well and to do good. Here we have ex the exact opposite. The curse of God upon Jesus was to 
alienate him, was to punish him because of the sins that he bore, not his sins, our sins. The holy, just, and righteous God who will not wink at sin punished all our sins upon him. Now here you understand we are trying, trying to speak about and describe the suffering, the anguish, and the torment of our Saviour. We're trying. But you see, beloved, who can understand what our Saviour went through? Who can understand His torments? Who can understand his anguish? Who can understand how much Christ suffered and suffered for us, poor, miserable sinners in and of ourselves? Who can fully understand the torment our faithful Saviour endured in order to save us from our sins? We can understand that. We can never fully understand it. But this we can and this we must understand. The absolute necessity that Jesus suffer the torment that he did, especially on the cross. Jesus had to. He had to or else we would be left in our sins and continue to be exposed to the just wrath and punishment of God. He had to, we say. And yet we ask the question, was there no other way? Are we sure, are you sure, and am I sure that there was no other way for him? Was it possible for Jesus to go another way other than this terrible way of the hellish agony of the cross? And that, beloved, is not a trivial question. In a different way, but in, in the same essence, Jesus asked that question, didn't he? At the Garden of Gethsemane, drawing ever closer to Calvary, what did he say and pray to his father? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The cup of wrath, of course, was referring to what he would suffer on the cross. If it's possible... If it's possible at all, let this cup pass from me. Just a whiff of it. And our Savior recoils at the wrath, the anger, the torment that awaits him at the cross. If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Well, the answer of the Word of God is clear. 
we all know what happened after Gethsemane. We all know what took place at Calvary. It was not possible. Christ must needs suffer the punishment of hell or else we would have to face that suffering ourselves. For you see, if God is perfectly righteous and just, just that He reveals, just as He reveals in Scripture, then we would have to be punished. We must be punished with extreme punishment. And here let's not forget what our Saviour taught in His ministry in relation to all those who do not put their trust in Him and what happens to them. In Matthew 25, verse 41, our Lord says, Then shall He say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from Me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. That's where all those who reject Jesus Christ are going to end up. Or again in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, with a different, slightly different words, but the same idea. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell. And so, the catechism echoes the sound of Scripture. Quote, Satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise. No otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. End quote. What other possibilities would there be concerning the removing of the cup of God's wrath from Jesus? Don't forget, beloved, how we got to this point in the catechism and the catechism's treatment of possibilities, other possibilities in Lord's Days 4 through 6. What's the possibility, Lord's Day 4? A quick review here. In order for us to be delivered out of our, the misery of our sins, the justice of God has to be satisfied. That's it. If that criteria is met, we would all enjoy deliverance and salvation. And so the Catechism went on to explore those possibilities in Lord's Days 5 and 6. And what was, what was the conclusion? Lord's Day 5. We cannot make satisfaction. Man, we cannot make satisfaction because we are sinners. How about an animal? Maybe an animal representing us could do the job for us since we can't. And the answer to that is also, no, animals will not do. The justice of God requires that since man sinned against God, man has to satisfy the justice of God. 
And moreover, he who represents us must be able to bear and sustain the, that killing, infinite wrath of God that is the just punishment for our sins. So, the conclusion, only one who is truly God can represent us. Lord's Day 6, who is that one who is truly God, who is truly man, and perfectly sinless and righteous? Jesus Christ. Only Jesus meets all the qualifications necessary to be our mediator. And Jesus is our mediator. He is. And being our mediator, He had to. He had to drink up the cup of wrath in entirety. Every single drop of it. There was no other way. No other way to remove our sins but through Jesus suffering the hellish punishment He endured for us all life long, but especially at the cross. Absolutely none. Now more can be said about this necessity of Christ's hellish torment in the language of Ephesians 1 verse 6, the descent of Christ into hell was necessary unto the praise and gl glory of Jehovah's grace. Here's the point. The glory of Jehovah God's grace could be revealed in no other way but this. Behold the glorious sovereignty of our God in having His Son, His very own Son, our Savior, go through what He did for us on the cross. Behold the glorious righteousness and justice that shone ever so brightly in having His Son pay and pay completely for our sins on the cross. And behold the glorious undeserved grace and wondrous love He displayed for us in having His Son go through all of that for us that we might enjoy forgiveness of sins and life eternal. What glorious sovereignty and righteousness. What glorious mercy and grace. Undeserved grace. What wondrous love of God that would have Jesus, His very own, be only begotten Son Himself, suffer the unspeakable, inexpressible torment and anguish of hell for us. Praise Him, therefore. Praise Him for the unspeakable, glorious grace shown to us through having His Son descend into hell for us.
God's perfect holiness, God's perfect righteousness, His great love, and His almighty grace is all captured in that one act of the giving and suffering of His Son, our Saviour, on the cross. Beloved, in order to know and to understand something of the glory of His grace shown to you, consider, consider personally the depths of humiliation Christ suffered. In this, the ultimate depth of all depths, so that His death means the death of death for us. That's right. Death for the believer has been converted. Just imagine that. Death converted to a door. A door that opens up and leads to Father's house of many mansions. He converted death to a door for you and for me. And that's a precious, precious benefit, beloved, among very many. But the Catechism outlines one benefit for our consideration. And in particular, it applies to us in our, quote, greatest temptations. Notice question answer 44. Why is there added, He descended into hell? Answer, that in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged into during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Note how the sentence begins, that in my greatest temptation. It's in the midst of our greatest temptations that we are assured, that we are wholly comforted that Christ hath delivered me. The catechism here is being intensely personal and practical. In my greatest temptations. Well, what are your greatest temptations? What are mine? We're going to answer that question differently, aren't we? doesn't matter. In our greatest temptations, what are your greatest temptations? Is it a, a feeling of dislike for someone? A despise even you might have in your heart? Is it anger? Is it bitterness? 
Is it discontentment? Is it impatience? Is it pride? Is it fear? Fear of death. We've all experienced those things, haven't we? doesn't matter what our answers are. The descent of Jesus Christ into hell gives the believer and repentant sinner great comfort when he needs it most. In the midst of going through those greatest temptations from within. Think about that, beloved. Just think about it. He descended into hell. He soaked it all up. All the punishment which we could possibly imagine that we deserve, He soaked it all up for us. And we come to know and realize this for ourselves in the moment of our greatest temptations. What wonderful assurance, what precious comfort this is that we belong to this, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And beyond that too, what a blessed hope we have from confessing Christ's descent into hell. Hope too. By our sins, we deserve to be left in the depths of our own sorrow and sins. But each one of us can say, since Christ was plunged into the depth of depths for me, I do not sink into those depths anymore. I don't. I deserve it, but He has gone there for me so that I don't go there. I don't sink into the depths of humiliation. And on the other hand, not only do we not sink into the, into the depths of humiliation, He has raised us up to sit together with Him in heavenly Places, even now. That's the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. He's raised us up to sit together with him even now. He's raised us up, not down. He's lifted us up. He's raised us up to sit with Jesus. Astounding, wonderful truth. You confess that, don't you? You who confess that then, know too that He will lift us. He will lift you and He will lift me higher up. When comes our time of death and when Jesus shall come again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. What wonderful benefits. Praise God. 
from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Heavenly Father, bless this word. Cause us to be mindful of the rich, even unsearchable riches and blessings that we have from Christ our Saviour and what He did for us 2,000 years ago. Especially during this week, this week, this Passion Week, may we, O Lord, give ourselves to think on these things, to trace the footsteps of our Saviour's suffering, to contemplate what He went through so that we might have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Bless us, Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.